The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Welcome back. Well, we are recording this at a time, I think it's an understatement to say, where there's a lot of frustration and anxiety out there, given truckers, convoys, blockades, and now Emergencies Act, which we've just heard today. So in that context, we are now going to see other things that I believe are going to sort of ratchet up tensions in a different way, and that's sort of energy prices overall. So we are going to talk about the oil price as it has solidly broken through 90. As I look at my screen here, it's just about to touch $95 US a barrel for WTI. But I think, you know, just closer to home, I, you know, full disclosure, yes, I've driven an electric vehicle a long time, but uh, we also have combustion vehicle in our household and trip to the gas station a week ago. Couldn't help notice that the price of gasoline was $1.46 here in Calgary, $1.50 for diesel. And that was a week ago. I know that in Ontario, the price of a liter of gasoline is now almost, I think, $155, $160 a liter, something like that. Yeah, it's about 10 cents higher. And so the differential between driving an electric vehicle versus a gasoline vehicle is pretty stark now. I mean, I know, Jackie, you've been keeping track of these sorts of things. And, and yeah. uh, what, do you, what, what, do you, what have you come up with? Well, so last weekend, I went to the gas station to fill up my car, and it was almost empty. Like, it's you know, it's somewhere between a quarter and, and empty. And it was like over $90 to mm. fill it. And it's not a super big car. It's an Audi Q5. So I was like, wow, that is expensive. Like, what are these people who have those big trucks paying nowadays? Oh, well over 100 yeah. Yeah. So when I went, I thought that kind of sparked me to do some math on what I'm paying compared to the electric car. Mm-hmm. And so now the Q5 needs to take premium fuel. So even worse, I was paying like $1.75 a liter because of that premium fuel. But a lot of Audis and a lot of more sporty cars do require that, right? So, and you're not allowed to put the other stuff in them, unfortunately. So anyway, I worked it out for that car. For me to travel 100 kilometers was about $17 last weekend. So then I went and looked at what it's costing me to drive the electric car. Mm -hmm. And the first thing you need to do is understand what you're paying for power. And if you're charging at home, I'm paying about seven cents a kilowatt hour at home for my direct energy cost. However, you actually pay an additional seven cents for things that are not direct energy costs that vary with how much electricity you use. Mm -hmm. So it took me a while to figure that out. And actually a listener pointed that out to me and I spent some time looking at my utility bill and reading the NMAX site. But basically there's another seven cents of charges that vary with your electricity use, although they're under fees, so they don't look like that. So in total, you're really paying about 14 cents. At that rate, it's costing me about $2.50 to drive 100 kilometers, just to put in perspective how much cheaper it is to drive the yeah. electric car now. Uh, now, if I was at a external charger, like I had to go to an, a third-party charger, I'd be paying about twice that much, but still a huge savings associated with using the electric car. Now, I worked it out. If I'm charging at home, for an average person that goes you know, an average amount of kilometers each year, it would work out to be about $3,000 a year savings. So, you know, that's a substantial savings. However, those electric vehicles are expensive, especially if you have a used combustion vehicle. Yeah. You know, it's it's really still hard to make that switch just on fuel savings. But if you're looking at a new car, I think the economics are looking pretty good. Yeah, they are. They are. But I think you've sort of 
captured the issue, whether it's an electric vehicle or even a more fuel-efficient combustion vehicle, there's an upfront outlay of money that a consumer has to put down to make the switch. And everything is inflating in price. Even used cars have inflated in price. And there is, as a consequence of the pandemic and supply chain disruptions, inflation, not everything in climate. I mean, there's a definitely a big issue in terms of income inequality and the ability of people to be able to afford buying a new vehicle, even if they want to. And so I think that though the price escalation of gasoline, diesel, is a signal for people to switch, the ability to actually switch, unless you're in the market for a new vehicle and flush enough to be able to do that, is quite challenging. Yeah, and it's actually even challenging to buy a more efficient ICE engine because I don't know if you've been to these auto lots lately, but with all the supply chain issues, mm. there are not a lot of new cars even on the lots to buy, yeah. which is why the used cars yeah. have inflated so much. So people, I don't think, have a ton of option in the short to medium term. No, they don't, which is why it's quite likely that we're going to see you know, ongoing fiscal pain in the wallet and we're likely to see ongoing higher energy prices as well because... When you think about the ability to switch off of a fuel like gasoline quickly, it's unlikely to happen. And that goes all the way upstream to the oil wells, where the price of a barrel of oil, as we've said, has gone over 90. So let's talk about that. Okay, well, yeah. So today we're going to have three topics. We'll give you a bit of an update on the oil markets. We are going to talk about those Canadian industry outlook for cash flows and revenues. About a, three weeks ago or so, we had a podcast on that topic, and that was based on lower prices. So we just wanted to give you an update um, on our most recent expectations, and that is all on our website as well, and we'll send a link to that. And finally, we wanted to talk a little bit about a commentary I wrote in January mm-hmm. called Turn Out the Lights and Other Lessons on Energy Consumption. Okay. Well, at 17 cents a kilowatt hour, we want to turn out the lights. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that. Maybe it won't be as impactful as you think, but all right. So as we just talked, oil prices are high. I just will talk through some of the pillars of the oil market that Uh are keeping prices where they are. The first one is demand. We're seeing here in Alberta and Canada, some of these government restrictions are being relaxed, if not this week, then over the next month. And people are seeing that around the world in a lot of major economies and believing that oil demand is really going to ramp up here. And that's part of of the situation that we're seeing today on on the prices. Yeah, we're seeing the traffic congestion patterns get more congested, which is a sign that people are hitting the road or being mandated, some of them go back to work or are going back to work after a couple of years at home. So yeah, it's uh, the consumption side is pulling quite hard. Yeah, and then at the same time, there's the supply side, there's concerns there won't be enough supply. So OPEC Plus looks like they are maybe starting to hit the limits. You know, they have that deal where every month they're going to add another 400,000 barrels a day of additional supply to the market. But the last couple of months, they've come up quite short Hmm. of that. And so there's concerns that, hey, maybe they don't really have that much ability to add supply. And although the U.S. is expected to grow this year, it's still a fairly modest amount Mm -hmm. when you consider the potential for the demand growth that we're talking about. So the supply side is worrying. And then you add the potential for a major outage. And we're still talking about Ukraine and, and Russia here and yeah, the potential for, for Russia to uh, reduce its production. Yeah. But the issue here and now is this Russia-Ukraine situation. If Russia invades Ukraine, then sanctions to follow, who knows what the Russians will do, even if they had or have capacity, they're likely to use that as an economic weapon, in, in my view anyway. 
And so the outlook is not so good, and that's why the oil markets are reflecting a substantial geopolitical premium in the price of oil right yeah, now. Yeah, definitely. Part of what we're seeing today in today's oil price is the concerns about the potential for an right. outage uh, because of that situation. Right. And, you know, another really important factor is the storage situation. So we talked about that before, but like the storage is just very bullish for prices. It's quite low. You know, if you look at the places where we have data, the U.S. has weekly data and it's below the five-year average. We had a big draw last week. And so, you know, there isn't much of a, a cushion, I guess, to absorb an outage if there were to be one from Russia. And the developed countries also put up their data and they're uh, like at a six-year low. So, you know, the storage is a big issue. Mm-hmm. And if we had normal storage levels, I don't think you'd have quite the reaction that right. you have right now right. Um, to this potential right. outage. So the picture you're painting is that we have the Russian situation where let's let's just say they are sort of maxed out but if let's just some of these last minute peace initiatives that we hear about hopefully come to pass then we would likely to see the price of oil peel back yeah i think so i think so i think there's definitely something in the price today that's mm-hmm. already factoring in an outage and if it if right. that's deemed to be a low probability right. i think you would see a change there as well the market would still look short even without that outage, like if we look into the summer, it still looks like there are going to be some pretty low spare capacity. So, you know, it still would stay at a relatively high level, but not as high as we're seeing right, right. now. So I would expect to see, I don't know, depending upon how much the market believes in world peace, that we'd lose $5 a barrel, even let's just say 10 but you're still in the mid-80s. Yeah, no, for, exactly. For, saying, I mean, still this, be, this just, just, yeah, it would still be high. And provide for very robust revenues for oil and gas producing jurisdictions. Now, there there is some kind of clouds in the horizon, although it does look pretty uh, tight in terms of all the metrics when we look at the markets. But it is really the situation around the inflation. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you followed the news yeah. last week, the U.S. Consumer Price Index hit another yep. high in this cycle, 7.5% increase for January And of course, the central banks have said they're going to have to do something about this and they're preparing to have interest rate hikes starting in March. So, you know, I I just bring that up because, you know, ultimately they're trying to slow down the economy a bit here, slow down this inflation. And if they're too heavy handed, it could have impacts on oil demand and then change that outlook for how how tight the market is this year if if demand is impacted. I would point out that that's the CPI, Consumer Price Index which is, as you said, in the United States, jumped 7.5%. So CPI is representative of what the average consumer pays, like groceries, Amazon goodies that you get delivered to your door and so on. I think more notable is if you actually look at the PPI or the producer price index, which is the price that manufacturers of those goods, the Amazon goodies, you know, (laughs) have to pay for their input materials to make that stuff or what all the supply chains, whether it's pharmaceuticals or food, what have you, those prices are actually escalating faster from the charts that mm-hmm. I've seen. They are. And yeah. ultimately, that has to percolate through the economy and there's a lag. So I don't think this inflation story is over by any means. And we have this unique situation where, for example, oil, gas, all of the major metals and minerals are synchronously escalating in price 
with wide dynamic range, as I said, from, you know, off the low to, the, to, to where we are today. And so, actually, even coffee, which is really disturbing. <laughs> uh, so, you and know, we'll this really is, be grumpy when yeah, we can't afford really coffee. <laughs> um, like, just, uh, you know, this is going to percolate through the economy. So, this story is far from over. And as I said, I think it's going to contribute to significant anxiety where we go forward. And in some ways, it's, it's, it all becomes a self-referential vortex, which is why we're starting to hear, as you said, about interest rates going up potentially up by a full point in the United States and potentially more. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. All right, well, let's talk about, with all these higher prices, we have upped our outlook for Canadian oil and gas industry revenues and cash flows. Our previous outlook was based on a $71 average price, something like that. Mm -hmm. Now it's about $10 higher, the low 80s. And we have updated it to be uh, higher numbers, of course. Now we're expecting about $190 billion almost of revenue out of the Canada's oil and gas industry. And once they've paid their operating expenses, interests, and royalties and all that, what's left would be about $113 billion of cash flow. It's just a huge number. The previous record was more in the low 90s for cash flow, for low $90 billion. So, uh, yeah, as we see these prices go up, it makes sense that that those metrics go up as well. Yeah, I mean, the last high-water mark, as we discussed, well, actually it was 2021, but the the last episode, when we had $100 a barrel, the revenue... Max was about a not quite $150 billion for the upstream oil and gas producers in Canada as a whole, all the way from BC to Newfoundland and Labrador. Just to give you a sense, I mean, you just said 100 and almost 90 billion. So, you know, we're talking about another $42 billion on top of it. It's just a staggering amount of dollars. And we've written about that. And the implications of that we'll be discussing more in future podcasts. Yeah. Now, we haven't upped our outlook for activity levels because none of the public companies have come up and, s- and said yet, we're going to spend more money because like drilling, of this. Drilling activity. Yeah. So we still have that the same as before. Mm. And, and therefore, only about 32% of that cash flow is going towards CapEx now. Now, this still represents about a 20% increase over the activity levels that yeah. we saw last year. So it's helpful for the oil field services companies. But right now, we we haven't sort of said, okay, now that there's more money, we're going to see more activity. I'm not sure we will. We probably will see some. But you know, because companies are really focused on paying down debt and giving money to shareholders, we're not assuming that it's going to go into new drilling. Yeah, this is a big, big change from even 2013, 14, and frankly, even from a few years ago. And that is that historically... The oil and gas industry, not only here in the United States and around the world, they take every dollar of cash flow and they put it back into the ground to drill for more oil and gas. Well, the directive for the independent oil companies or the IOCs has been fairly clear, whether the pressure has come from the ESG and financial sector or whether it's come from policymakers in terms of uh, climate change policy that, okay, stop drilling because we don't need any more reserves. And so the pressures that have been brought to bear on the independent oil companies is basically now such that they're giving money back to shareholders instead of drilling. So if I look at this chart here with drilling activity, yeah, normally you would see it go way higher. And actually, I want to point that out. This is a chart that we have in our weekly charts, and I can put a link to that in in the show notes. But uh, it looks at Canadian drilling activity weekly, and it compares it to the five-year average, and it shows 2021 as well as what we've done so far in 2022. But the interesting thing is that the Canadian drilling rates have actually been lower than expected so far this year. A lot of people thought that the rigs out on the field could get up to about 250, 
But so far, it's been the low 200s. You know, I think we we hit uh, about 220 or 230 as a max so far. And that's surprising. And uh, it actually does really impact. This is the biggest drilling quarter of the Mm -hmm. year, typically for Canada. Now, we do expect that we'll probably see higher drilling rates in the second half to make up for this. But it kind of shows like maybe there are some limits to how much, even if companies did want to spend more money, there's limits to the activity rates that are possible today because our oil field services sector has contracted. Oh, it has contracted yeah. dramatically over the course of the last seven years. I mean, you trace this back to late 2014, early 2015 with the price war and the collapse of prices and all of the layoffs and basically six years of low prices. And we had our differentials that were very wide And so there wasn't a lot of drilling activity. A lot of oil and gas service companies either went bankrupt or retreated, didn't do a lot of maintenance, lost people. If you worked in the oil patch, you were now starting to build condos in the major centers where where there was stable work to be found. And so today we're in a situation where there's a lack of people and a lack of equipment. This is not exclusive to Canada. We're hearing the same things in the United States. So a consequence of, um, again, all of this is that even if you wanted to ramp up the oil production in the face of consumers that are demanding more and more of it, it's, it's not going to be possible. Yeah, and I mean, it's really stark when you look at this chart. You know, it, Here we are at $90 oil, and the rig activity rates are something like two-thirds of what the previous peaks were even, mm-hmm. even several years ago. So it just shows that there are some constraints in the system. Okay. Well, let's switch the topic to my recent commentary. So a little bit of background first on this article. This article was published for Let's Talk Science and the Royal Society of Canada, who have partnered with the Globe and Mail to get more articles for kids and their parents around STEM topics. If you don't know what STEM topics are, well, it's uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And it's really to get kids more interested in these topics and hopefully choose careers in that area. A lot of kids today are actually disengaging even before they leave high school on these topics uh, and then don't have the choice to do that in post-secondary. So it's a way to spark their interest. So I was really excited to do this and I wanted to do an article around energy use in our home. And I had you had got me onto this, Peter, mm-hmm, but I'd mm-hmm. gotten this device called Sense yep. that would track real time the energy use in my home. And uh, we, we did get solar panels put on the house in November. So it, it not only shows how much we're generating, but it shows how much we're using. And I found it just fascinating. And actually, my daughter and I did a bunch of work to run around the house and turn things on and off and learn how much energy different devices in our home took. And I, you know, I, I learned a lot. I, I have to admit, I wasn't that knowledgeable on the energy use of different devices in my home. And, and so I thought I would write an article on that. Yeah, well, doing that would lead you to buy a clothesline instead of using your dryer. You know, I've done that in the past. and You know, I've got um, other apps that measure the same sort of thing, and I did that even 10 years ago. It's, uh, you'd be surprised at what your high-energy-consuming devices might be, refrigerator, dryer, the underfloor heating, if you have that in your bathroom. That's a huge one, right? Yeah, yeah. actually, that's one thing we learned. As I, I was like, what is going on at night? There's this huge spike in our <laughs> energy use. For like three hours, and I realized that we had this, we did have this heated tile in our bathroom that was set on a timer. So we've we've actually cut that way back. You know, we don't really need it running as many hours as we have it. I think it was about 1,300 watts when it was running. But Leahy, before we get into that, though, let's do a little bit of 101, because this article also had that in terms of the units of measure. Mm. Because, uh, you know, this is a learning for me, too, because, you know, being more from the oil and gas industry, 
initially, I didn't really have a sense of, of the amount of energy and, and the measurements. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we'll start with this. So watts is measures how much electrical power is used by your device. So when you're turning on a lamp or a device, you know you can picture those electrons flowing into the appliance like water. I know they don't really do that. You, ta- you taught <laughs> me that, Peter, but I think it's easier for people to understand that. So one watt would be like water flowing through a needle. 100 watts would be like water flowing through a straw. And 1,000 watts might be like water flowing through a garden hose, just mm-hmm, to give you a mm-hmm, sense mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. size. And your average home consumes about 1,000 watts at any one time. Mine's a little higher, unfortunately. It's about 1,500, but I blame that on the electric car. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the average home is around that, just to give you a sense. Now, of course, the home is never really at that level. It's gyrating wildly all the time, but that's the average because you know, as you turn things on, turn on the oven, turn on things, it can, it can go three, four times that level and then come down to, to very low levels right, when, you're, right. when you're not using stuff. Yeah, so you know, this notion of being able to measure and see is a super important one. However, you've got a fairly new house. Yes, yeah. And, and so the circuit box and the ability to, to monitor these things is, so you know, there's a lot of older homes that have older boxes in the basement, the circuit panel, uh, that are not conducive to easily doing this kind of thing. So not everybody can easily monitor their electrical power uses by circuit, by device. That's, uh, that's one issue. But if they could, then I think they would be much more inclined to be more conservation-oriented and minded, especially as the price of energy goes up. Yeah, and that was my point in the article, right? Like, it's important as people think about the climate and what they can do. The first, a good place to start is thinking about your own energy use. But in order to do that, you have to learn something. And these devices are quite good. You know, I don't know the limits of this, but you know, they had to actually install a physical device here, right near my electrical box. Mm-hmm. And then I had the app on my phone that talks yeah. to that. So I'm not sure the limits for every home, but it is pretty interesting to be able to do that. And it's kind of fun to show people and things like oh, that. So yeah, well, uh, it's more than fun. I mean, yeah. I think it's it's instructive. You know, I, I think that. We're entering this period, as we know, of inflating energy prices, both electricity and gasoline, diesel, everything. And so that is really the trigger. I mean, I think that it's been shown that if the price is really cheap, then merely saying, hey, you're helping the environment and so on is is somewhat a little bit um, not enough of an incentive. Yeah, for sure. Well, and so, you know, it's interesting. You know, some things are really cheap. You know, when I was a kid... My parents were always like, turn out the lights. And, and, you know, there was always this like running around the house and making sure the lights weren't left on in rooms that weren't being used. And so I was surprised at how efficient lighting is today. And we do have all, all LED lights in our home. But, like, you know, things like our Christmas tree, we had a fairly big Christmas tree mm. and it was like 20 watts. So, you know, I said that's like 20 of electricity maybe flowing through a needle, right? Like that, if you think of those old fashioned light bulbs that you used to have, those were 60 watt light bulbs. So your entire Christmas tree, and we have like a lot of lights on that tree, was like yeah. one third of, of an old fashioned light bulb. Oh yeah, right? lighting has become much more efficient. And so the only danger when lighting becomes more efficient is that uh, people string up six times as many lights, not only on their tree, but all sorts of, you know, under the counter, around the trim, and so on and so forth. Yeah, so and it all adds up. It, yeah. it, it all ends up adds up. But like our exterior, we actually had Christmas lights put kind of on the top of the house all the way around and the second level, so two levels. Mm. It was 100 watts, like equivalent to an old-fashioned light bulb, a little bit more than that for all of those lights. So, yeah. you know, the LED lights are just oh, phenomenal, yeah, right? they are amazing. What are they, something like 
they're fifteen percent of the energy use is the equivalent mm-hmm. of old ones. Mm-hmm. So that that's really amazing. And so mm-hmm. turning out the lights doesn't do what it used to. But I, you know, there were some things that surprised me in terms of energy use. Popcorn maker, two thousand watts when it's running. Now I know you don't use it for very long, but that's crazy. And, and a toaster oven sure, was a dryer, similar amount. Hair dryer was huge. In fact, I I look at this app in the morning and I just like see when I turn the air the hair dryer on, it just goes like mm. way up. So that was surprising. You know, big screen televisions, I always thought those took a lot of energy. No, but ours, down. our big one was like 120 watts. So that's nothing. That's like a light bulb or something. Yeah, it's old-fashioned light bulb. But, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when we actually have differential pricing for, of electricity by time of day. Right? Because then you can, it's easy to do on your electric vehicle for sure. You can just say, turn it on at 2 a.m. and you get the benefit of really low rates mm-hmm. in the middle of the night as opposed to peak times, you know, when people wake up and put the coffee pot on and blow dryer their hair and start frying an egg or whatever. And then when they come home in the evening is the other big surge in electricity consumption. So those are the peak hours. If you are encouraged to do things you can do in the evening, like your dryer or whatever, then I think not only do we balance the load, as they say in the, in the electrical world, but we also economize considerably. I think that may come. You know, another really interesting thing that came out of this is this electric vehicle charging. You know, I, I didn't really appreciate the magnitude of it. So, you know, things like I just said, your clothes dryer or your popcorn maker, you know, that's like 2000 together, maybe if you're running both of them, 4000 But for fairly short amounts of time. And even your oven and your dryer, this is the other thing, they don't run continuously at that level like your dryer will be using the 2000 and then it'll just go, at least ours, on just using air for a bit. Mm-hmm. So the usage isn't just like up and then stays up for the 45 minutes that you're drying your clothes. It kind of goes up and down mm-hmm. between running the heater element, I guess, and the fan. But your electric car, that goes 8,000. So when that car starts charging, and we do it at night because by default the uh, car mm-hmm. is set up to do that, it's just off the charts because not only is it the magnitude is much higher. I remember my average use is something like 1,500, and this is 8,000. But it's the duration. It's steadily drawing for like six or seven hours. Now, we don't do it every day. If, if you charged every day, it would be a much shorter yeah. duration. Yeah. We just do it like twice a week when it kind of gets low. Yeah. But I guess, you know, to me, when I looked at that and thought, wow, like if everyone on the block did that, even at night, that's a huge load. And, and I think today there's no economic incentive for me to do that any particular time of the day. But I think that has to be coming as more and more people get the electric vehicles. Well, it is, but I I think actually it's going to get more pronounced because we are now on the verge of seeing the introduction of a whole bunch of electric pickup trucks, which have much higher capacity, battery capacity, because they're bigger and heavier vehicles. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to see even, you may not see the rate of charge increase that much, but the length of which you are charging is going to be longer because the battery's bigger to charge. And so if you have everybody on the block with an electric pickup truck or two-thirds of the people with an electric pickup, it's going to put a lot of strain in it. You know, I think people legitimately suggest that actually the block can't handle it. And we've even heard stories about that kind of thing. Yeah, well, and I live in a neighborhood where a lot of older houses, they were built in like the 50s or 60s, have now been replaced by two skinny houses. Mm -hmm. So I think about like our electrical grid, and I wonder like, 
you know, really, we've almost doubled the amount of users here on the system in some of these inner city neighborhoods where that type of development has happened. And then we're going to add this to it. So it's interesting. In Calgary here, NMAX now has a trial. So people that own electric cars have signed up for this trial. And we've put a device into the car that's tracking our all of our patterns and usage because they want to learn more about how people use electric cars and how they charge and what the patterns look like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm actually really interested to see the results of that study. Maybe we'll get them on the show when that's done mm-hmm. and what you know their view of the challenge they may have now that they have that data. Yeah. Well, there's other challenges. You know, even personally, I had to change out a, a gas-fired boiler not too long ago and I asked the boiler installer, can I get an electric one? And he said, yes, you can, but you don't have enough capacity on your circuit board your breaker board to be able to add it because you've got an electric vehicle, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm maxed out. So this poses other challenges for community level charging or the size, uh, metaphorically, if you called it, the, the hose, the electrical hose from the main line to your house uh, has to be expanded to be able to handle all these electric devices. Yeah, right. And then you add the electric car and maybe you yeah, get start getting possible. two electric cars in a house eventually. Well, I mean, um, that is the reality is if everybody gets two electric cars, not one, and everybody on the block gets two electric pickup trucks, well, we don't have the infrastructure to be able to handle that right now. Yeah. I mean, there are alternative strategies. One is you could set a maximum limit for the car so that, you know, I don't necessarily need to charge it at the 8,000. I could charge it at the 4,000 for longer. Or I could charge it every day, you know, If, but again, I, I, why would I do something that's inconvenient? There has to be some price signal that would motivate me that. But there are a lot of strategies, I think, to avoid those large peaks and the utilities can mm-hmm. do things to, to get people motivated to do that. Right. Well, lots to think about and lots to think about, especially in this environment of inflating energy prices. And so we shall have plenty to talk about going forward. Yeah, we sure will. So, hey, thanks for joining the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.